Welcome to Bible Worm. We're on hiatus until September 2021, but this summer we're replaying our 2020 series on the Hebrew Festival Scrolls. This week, enjoy our episode on Song of Songs 5 and 8 from July 5th, 2020. Happy listening and see you in September. Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, here each week with my good friend, Dr. Robert Williamson. We are two Bible scholars and people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. Bobby is a professor of religion at Hendricks College in Conway, Arkansas, and the founding pastor at Mercy Church in Little Rock. I'm the director of lifelong learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. Together, we are Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. This week, we continue our study of the Song of Songs, learning more about the awesome and fearsome passion of our young lovers, and seeing the jarring ways in which the world around them, well, to be more specific, the men around them, seeks to control that passion. And in case you weren't sufficiently challenged to read this text as both erotic love poetry and an allegory about our relationship with God, how about we flip the roles in that allegory and see what happens then? You know you want to try. Thank you for joining us. Oh, good morning, Bobby. How are you? I'm good. How are you today? I am doing well, and I am especially cheered by the mug from which you drink your (laughs) coffee this morning. This is my new Father's Day mug. Which says, I try to act nonchalant. But underneath, I am chalant AF. Oh, yeah, I am. <laughs> that is true. You never see it coming. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's poetry, Bobby. That's poetry. That's poetry just like our text this week. <laughs> that was an amazing segue. Oh, that was, that a was gift really from good. God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's great. <laughs> so we are still in Song of Songs. We yes. are in week two of the Song of Songs. When we left our lovers last time, they were leaping around gazelle-like um, <laughs> through the fields yeah. and just having a, a really fantastic romp. So, so we did a lot of introduction last week. We did. But for folks who are joining us today and maybe did not hear the last podcast, can you give us a quick, like, what are we looking at here in the Song of Songs? Yeah, I mean, so first I would say go back and listen to last week's podcast because it it's was a good amazing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I do say myself. I'm very nonchalant. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think the key bits are Song of Songs in its plain sense is erotic love poetry. It tells the story or at least gives the dialogue of two lovers who seem to be quite young, probably unmarried, one male, one female, who are just exploring sort of becoming sexual beings. As we said last time, it has traditionally often been read as an allegory of a relationship between God and humankind in some form or another. So in the Jewish tradition, God and Israel, in the Christian tradition, God and the church, or sometimes Jesus and the church, God and the human soul. So to try to read it on those two levels at the same time, it's about human sexuality. Oh, yeah. And also it's about God's love for humankind. I mean, it can kind of mess with your head a little bit, but oftentimes it also results in some really intriguing readings, I think. Yeah. 
Are there other things we would want to say by way of reintroduction? The only other thing I would want to put back in our minds again is a line from your book that we also mentioned last time, which is, the Song of Songs will make you blush, but it won't get you arrested. (laughs) Yeah. Right? So, like the best love poetry, it gestures toward, like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of innuendo. Yes. You know, but it but it's not explicit. And so the translation of the song is really challenging to hold on to all the nuance of the words and the way that the text can gesture toward different ideas without taking you all the way there. And so f- for today, I am actually going to read and I usually read from the JPS, the Jewish Publication Society's yeah. translation. Today I am going to read from a translation by Ariel and Hannah Bloch. Oh yeah. Which is just a little more attentive to the poetry, I think. Yeah. So, and what are what are you looking at? I am going to read the NRSV today. Good. So, where there are differences, then we'll discuss where they where they seem important. So, we are reading from two sections of the Song of Songs today. One is in chapter five, and one is in chapter eight. And in chapter five, we'll be reading verses two through nine. I was asleep, but my heart stayed awake. Listen, my lover knocking. Open, my sister, my friend, my dove, my perfect one. My hair is wet, drenched with the dew of night. But I've taken off my clothes. How can I dress again? I have bathed my feet. Must I dirty them? My love reached in for the latch, and my heart beat wild. Bobby, what is happening here? I was asleep, <laughs> but my heart stayed awake. Yeah. What are, is this like a dreamlike state? That's the way it is sometimes interpreted. Mm-hmm. I tend to think it's more that she's she is sort of in the process of going to sleep, but she hasn't fully gone to sleep yet, or like she's still kind of in that state mm-hmm. where you're still thinking about the day or things like that. And so she's being waked up again from this almost asleep state. Mm-hmm. I don't really know, though. It's hard to know exactly what that means. What? How do you read it? I think I tend to read it that the way that you said this, like she's... She's like mostly asleep, but then is partially awakened and is kind of confused. Like, mm, yeah. like her thinking, like she hears her lover knocking and saying this stuff. And then she's thinking like, but I already brushed my teeth. Like, yeah. <laughs> I already, like, I yeah. already got ready for bed. I can't get out of bed. And she's, you know, like, I don't know, you lay in bed and you think you're thinking logically and yeah. I don't know, but, but can't quite make sense of what's happening. But this second line, which my translation is still in verse two, sort of the second part of verse two, mm-hmm. open my sister, my friend. What does the NRSV have there? The uh, the NRSV has open to me. Oh, okay. Yeah. The JPS has let me in. So it's much more like you picture a door. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's it's I think that's what the text is working on in one way. Right. So yeah. listen, my beloved is knocking. And then he says open to me. And so you're. Your first inclination is to think, oh, he's talking about open the door, but he doesn't actually say the door. He just says open to me and which is, which is really kind of a suggestive thing, like open, open up to me, my, my love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That works on a couple of different levels at the same time. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is like a booty call, right? Like, uh, (laughs) I don't know. Are you allowed to say that about the Bible? I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. That's how. Song of songs. It's like he texted her, like you up. (laughs) <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, isn't that what's happening here? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a biblical booty call. However you read it, he's 
come to her door in the middle of the night when she was already asleep. And he mm -hmm. said, hey, open the door. Like there's yeah. only there's only so many places to go from there. Right. 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 It certainly is for some kind of like romantic rendezvous. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. So we can talk about opening the door or opening sexually. But like, yeah, it's leading in the same general direction. Now, you read this verse three. In the NRSV, I, I put off my garments. I take it off my clothes. How can I put them on again? I've already bathed my feet. You were reading that, at least I thought, I think, a little earlier as, like, she's confused. I have tended to read this as she is flirting with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yep. Mm -hmm. And so he says, come open the door, right? And she's, of course, she wants to go open the door. But she's like, how could I possibly do that? I've already taken off my clothes. Like, like I'm in here with no clothes on and I can't have my feet. I'm well bathed. And how could I possibly walk across the floor? So I think I think it's this kind of flirtatious response. I mean, it's a it's a coy invitation is what that it is. That is a much sexier reading than mine. <laughs> I was like, have I got my curlers in my hair? <laughs> but I think a little bit later, as we're going to see, I think he completely misunderstands what she has said maybe in the way yeah. that you're reading maybe in the it. way that i have yeah. yeah this part gets intense bobby <laughs> i rose to open to my love my fingers wet with myrrh sweet flowing myrrh on the door bolt i opened to my love but he had slipped away how i wanted him when he spoke i sought him everywhere but could not find him i called his name but he did not answer yeah that is such a provocative image. So myrrh, it's like dripping myrrh is like, you know, perfume. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I don't know. But dripping things on the door bolt is a. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so she is she is welcoming his invitation mm -hmm. at this point. Yes. She is done either considering whether she can really open the door or coyly playing that she can't open the door. And she's here and clearly ready for the rendezvous that he is suggesting. Yeah. Right? And about to open the door. But then he's not there. He has heard her say, I'm still in, I'm, in, I'm already in bed. I can't wash my feet. And I mean, in that same way that he sort of lacked subtlety in the double entendre of the climbing the tree and eating the fruit. Like, He's a little, <laughs> he's a That's little true. tone he's a, he's a little like literalist. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. And so by the time she gets to the door, he's been like, oh, well, I, I mean, I guess. And he's disappeared. She couldn't wash her feet. Yeah. Yeah. So he feels rejected, I think. Or, I mean, we don't really have access to what he feels, but like trying to imagine this character knocking on the door, here's what she says, and then isn't even there anymore. Right. Must have felt like he had been rejected or at least declined. So going back both to to your comments last time about him being a little tone deaf and, you know, mm -hmm. maybe taking her literally and not seeing this as flirting. And also, you know, last time you really pointed out that he's not kidding about consent. Like, yeah, if yeah. she has said, I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I can't come out. Then he left. Like, that's a really okay. positive. I like that reading. Like she said, no. And like, no means right. no. Yeah. I mean, it's hard not to get caught up in her frustration and sort of desperation when she goes to the door and she's so ready to see him and he's not there like she says my yeah. my nafshi my my nefesh went out like my life my breath yeah. my very being would go out when he spoke like yeah. she's so like all of her attention is heaped up upon his words and she goes and opens the door and he's gone. I mean, I don't know. Like, it's just kind of a tragic. Oh, tragic's maybe not the right word. 
but you really feel for her right there. Like she, she loves this guy. He was so close, mm-hmm. and she didn't. Un- he didn't understand her. What she was trying to say. Flirtation, and, and now right. he's disappeared. Have you ever? <laughs> did you ever read the personal sections of the newspaper just for fun, Bobby? Uh, this is like no. back back from a long time ago. <laughs> I don't even know if there are personal sections. Yeah. I used to have a, a my middle my eighth grade language arts teacher. If the <laughs> class was good. She would read us things from the personal <laughs> section, only the like, you know, appropriate ones That's or whatever. That's amazing. And they were so funny. It was like every day she would read us from the personal section. And there was this part called Missed Connections. Oh, yeah. And it would be like someone <laughs> that you had encountered and you wish you had spoken to them, but you didn't, but you don't know their name and you can't get in touch with them. And so people would put ads in the paper. Like I saw you on the subway just as the doors were closing and our eyes connected and our eyes connected and you have brown hair and you were reading this book and i hope you'll you yeah. know call me on our old rotary telephones or whatever <laughs> <laughs> yeah so this is yeah. i love that so this is a this is missed connections missed connections fifth century bce i love it and i had my sunday school class write like the personal ad that she could write for him yeah he knocked on my door i was dripping with myrrh there's your like- children's <laughs> sermon everybody <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. You need a children's sermon on erotic poetry. Then there you go. <laughs> oh, oh goodness. goodness. Okay, but things things don't get better for her. <laughs> they do not get better for her. No. So she's like desperately seeking him. It's not clear in verse six if she's still standing in her doorway or if she's sort of moved out into the city. But then it becomes clear in the next verse that she yeah. has she has moved out. So let yeah. me read the the next couple verses for us. Then the watchmen found me as they went about the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they tore the shawl from my shoulders, those watchmen of the walls. Swear to me, daughters of Jerusalem, if you find him now, you must tell him, I am in the fever of love. How is your lover different from any other, O beautiful woman? Who is your lover that we must swear to you? Well, before we talk about who is your lover, who are these watchmen? I mean, she seems to be in the street kind of late at night, like she had already been asleep. But these are the watchmen. Like these are the people who are responsible for making sure that people like her are safe. And instead they have beat her and wounded her. And taken some clothing off her. Like, I don't know what exactly happened, but there is, there's an assault here that involves beating and the removal of clothing. But some people have speculated that the shawl, the mantle, was would have marked her walking the street late at night would have marked her as a prostitute. Mm-hmm. But people say that by way of kind of excusing what the watchman did. <laughs> like, well, but but hang on. Like, even if you are a sex worker walking the yeah, street late at night, like, that doesn't mean people can just come and take what they want. Yeah, like I mean, and clearly they have they have injured her in some way. They beat her. They wounded her. They took her shawl. You know, just I, I've been reading this text for years and have never thought about it this way until preparing for this podcast but we'll read in the next section this little piece about a wall and sort of yeah. like the metaphor i guess of a wall and being some kind of connection to like chastity or like you know a, a protection against the sexual activity of yeah. women or something like that and so i it made me think about these men as the watchers of the wall mm. um, which is part of the the watchmen of the walls which is the oh, translation yeah. in the bloch and sort of this idea of men or some men as trying to protect 
chastity or virginity yeah. or like the sexual behavior of like to own the sexual behavior of women. Yeah. I don't know. Just add an, an interesting. That is such a brilliant reading. Layer. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So they see themselves as protecting like women. Her honor or something. Yeah. By beating this woman that they perceive as threatening to women's honor. Or teaching her not to behave in this dishonorable way. I'll tell you, anytime a man says he's going to protect my honor, you run the other way. That yeah. is trouble. I got my honor covered. Thanks. Yeah. But she never comments on any of this. She that's doesn't. the other thing that's so profound to me. Like she just says this happened. She is just trying to find her lover. Yeah. Immediately after that, hey, daughters of Jerusalem. And here she's calling to her friends who are around now. If you find my beloved, tell him I am faint with love. Like all she can think about is finding this, finding this guy. Mm -hmm. So they respond then in verse nine is the chorus mm -hmm. of women, her friends. Yeah. I really, I, I like the way the blokes translated that. Could you just read that again? Yeah. Verse nine in this translation. How is your lover different from any other, O oh beautiful woman? Who is your lover that we must swear to you? I have a student I, who I write about in my book, actually, her name is Laura Beth Durham. And she, she, she read this text as a text about sexual violence and that this man who claimed to love her kind of abandoned her in ways that left her wandering the streets and vulnerable and, and she was attacked. And so her reading was there, there are no men in the story that are reliable. And so how, is there any way to redeem the story? And she found verse nine. So there's a, there are women who are supporting their friend and their question is like, what's so great about that guy, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. It's like, he's not that great. Like he's not, he's not worth what just happened to you. And so then her reading of the Song of Songs was the, the fundamental thing is about women's solidarity with women or maybe just people's solidarity with women that that prior to all this other stuff about, you know, the, the, the excitement of sex and sexuality is this kind of fundamental commitment that we need to be present for women in ways that uplift and support them. I really love that. And I really love the idea of like having a, a sort of community of friends or like a chorus of friends who help you keep your bearings through this unbelievably powerful and overwhelming experience of early love. Yeah. And so to have people around you who can say, yeah, like, get a grip. Like, you do not need to put yourself in harm's way to pursue this one person. Like, this is one person, and he left you in a really vulnerable position. Yeah. And he's not worth it. Yeah. That's a, it's a, that's a really powerful reading. Now, if you shift this passage into the allegorical register. Okay, I'm shifting in my head. Yeah, yeah it's a it's okay. a big shift to make from where we just <laughs> were, but but I'm asking it at this moment for a, you know, you can see yeah. why. Yeah. Then what you have is a male character who is God who knocks but then leaves. And a female character who is us in some form or another who wander out into the street in search of God and get beaten. Mm -hmm. that to me is the most like when you try to think like what do we do with the song of songs allegorically oftentimes it's a very beautiful reading here it's a deeply troubling reading 
Mm-hmm. You have any thoughts about? <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, what like what do you with do that? with that? My first thought is that in some ways it feels true. Mm. I think the idea that God and humans are constantly searching for each other Mm. and sometimes missing each other is true. Yeah. I I harbor this fantasy, as I'm sure many people do, that like once I... I repeatedly harbor this fantasy. Once I sort of quote unquote figure out the whole God thing and have these like moments of like, it all makes sense. And I, you know, like it all fits together of one piece and I feel this deep closeness that I've like arrived and that's going to stay forever. And I finally like, you know, leveled up and that's never, it, it so far has not been true. Like I, I come in and out of those moments of uh, like exquisite closeness. And then this, searching and i don't know like there's a sense of danger in the search itself i don't know it feels it feels true not comforting it does not feel comforting but it feels true what do you think uh what you said was beautiful and uh and i think true and i i really appreciate that my friend who is a presbyterian pastor here in little rock marie maynard o'connell she suggested to me that the convention of reading the allegory where God is the male character is merely convention. And then if you're going to allegorize the text, like you could just as well flip the poles and let God be the female character. Sure. And, um, and so I, in, in my book, I have a little section just really briefly where I try to do that. I'm hoping Marie someday is going to just write that book because I think it would be an amazing book. Mm. But this is one of the passages where I found that kind of profound. If you flip the poles, then we're the ones who are kind of fickle and like we're at the door, but we're not at the door. Like we're there, but we wander away. God Mm -hmm. is the one who's kind of the constant at home waiting for us to come back, willing to follow us out into dangerous places at Mm -hmm. personal risk. You can read Mm -hmm. in the Christian tradition, you can read the Jesus story into that. Yeah. The bodily risk of trying to pursue humankind. So I have found that a really rich way of reading it with the, with Mm -hmm. the allegory reversed. One of the things I love about the Song of Songs is, you know, I feel like this little passage, these three verses, well, really, maybe these nine verses, in the sort of plain sense reading of the text, in the allegorical, traditional reading of the text, and also also in the reverse allegorical reading of the text, y- there's profound things to think about there, which in my mind yes. is what a biblical text ought to do, is like invite us into this really like rich conversation about theology, not... Not settle all the issues for us, but open up mm-hmm. possibilities. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. And and to sit with all those different possibilities and say, like, in what ways is that true? Right. And in what ways is it not true? Right. You know, but I think that's to sort of expand the realm of possibilities. That's that's what gets us thinking deeply and, you know, think new thoughts. Yeah. This brings us to the end of our section from chapter five. But we are not done. We are moving on to chapter 8 now, where we will read verses 5 through 10. There beneath the apricot tree, your mother conceived you. There you were born. In that very place I awakened you. Bind me as a seal upon your heart, a sign upon your arm. For love is as fierce as death, its jealousy bitter as the grave. Even its sparks are a raging fire, a devouring flame. Great seas cannot extinguish love. No river can sweep it away. 
If a man tried to buy love with all the wealth of his house, he would be despised. This section in in 6 and 7. Yeah. Like this movement into this cosmic imagery is so, so very. (laughs) Yeah. So very powerful. I mean. It is chalant AF. It is is chalant AF. Yeah. Talk, talk to me about some of these some of the imagery that's used here and and how it how it speaks to you and how it fits with what we've already seen. I mean this set me as a seal upon your heart, set me as a seal upon your arm. Like I think of the seal kind of I mean this is like sealing a a letter I assume like a a marker of I don't know possessions what I'm coming up with but that's not exactly what I mean. Like mm-hmm. It's like tattooing somebody's yeah, name. No, it's like tattooing someone's name on you. Yeah, yeah. like that sense of like... Uh, They're marked as belonging together. Yes. So we belong yes. to each yes. other. And yes. that is so true that you could put that on your arm in ink. And you could put it on your... Like you could put it on your heart. Seal it on your heart. Tattoo my name on your heart, baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And to me, that's just like, I mean, just the the image there of like, we are so bonded to one another that it like, we're connected at that core level. And then this imagery of, you know, love is as strong as death. I don't like that connection of love and death and passion and the grave, like thinking about how do we symbolize around mortality and Mm -hmm. when we fall in love like we know that there's an end like this brings us in some ways back to our ecclesiastes conversation it totally brings us back to ecclesiastes yes and all this imagery of the of the waters the floods trying to put out the little you know the what might appear to be like a little flicker of flame of our love like that that can never overcome it the the text has done a really good job i think of giving us some sense of the force of the of the sense of connection, like the like gravitational pull that seems like this superhuman like universe, like cosmic force that is drawing these two people together, and can be overwhelming and sort of nonsensical. Yeah, you know, in some ways. And I love that this this part of the text takes it out of just like the field next to their house. You know, these sort of like lovely outdoor fields into these huge like cosmic language, you know, like the raging fires and the great seas and death itself, like the biggest big things you can imagine. Yeah. Not just the adorable bunnies or the apricot (laughs) trees. So what you said is really profound on the level of human human love. This passage is also really quite famously read in the allegorical interpretation where it's put in the, if it's in the mouth of the female character, then this is humanity speaking to God and saying, hey, God, write my name on your arm, write my name on your heart, because we know that God's love is as strong as death. And so I I really think that's kind of this profound idea that God would have tattooed the names of you and me and all the other people uh, that God has loved, um, who have loved God on God's heart. If you reverse the poles of the allegory, like we were talking about before, so that God is the one speaking this, then what it's saying is to you or to me or to whomever, God is saying, write my name, that is write God's name on your heart or on your mm-hmm. on your arm because my love is as strong as death. So where the other way, it was sort of a plea for God to remember us. 
if you flip the poles of the allegory, it becomes God's kind of assurance that God will remember. Like, I'm going to remember you. My love for you is bigger than death. And you can write that on your arm because mm-hmm. you know it's true. Yeah. And it, it's making me think, too, of the Vea Hafta prayer in in the Jewish tradition that you will, you know, love the Lord your God with, you know, all your mind, all your soul and all your might. And that that Jews actually like wear that like wrapped to fill in around their arms to like literally bind those words to themselves yeah. like as a sign of their love. Yeah. So it's a sign and a reminder. It's yeah, it's it's very evocative language. Yeah. I love those two verses in all in all kinds of contexts. Like I could just sit and think about the, the implications of those two on multiple levels for a long, long time. Yeah. But <laughs> but instead, now we have some auxiliary characters who speak up from the sides here. It is not the woman. It is not the man. It is the brothers, the yeah. big brothers of the woman. There's nothing yeah. to try to shut you down like your big brothers when you are <laughs> a young teenager. And I love how this comes like five verses from the end of the book. So like the, the brothers don't really show up to say anything until like, like a lot has happened before now, you know? Yeah, I know. I know. They have no idea what's going on. <laughs> they think they know it all. They don't yeah. know what's going on. Mm. All right. So starting in verse eight, we have a little sister and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister when suitors besiege her? If she is a wall, we will build a silver turret upon her. If she is a door, we will bolt her with beams of cedar wood. I am a wall and my breasts are towers. But for my lover, I am a city of peace. So now her brothers come and hold court for a minute. As yeah. it, it, it feels so jarring, like these outsiders to the entire situation who are like, now we have an opinion about our sister's body that we would like to share with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great. We would love to hear it. What is your opinion about your sister's body? <laughs> um, since you might be a little sarcastic there, Amy. Like, oh, oh, God. You don't go really away. care, do you? <laughs> no, I don't care. I do not care. But the text cares because it's in here. So I have to read it. You were mentioning earlier that you kind of read this as like the defensive imagery and like there's there's turrets and cedar boards and embattlements. Like just can you just talk through like the way that you like, what do you think? I mean, I think it's. What do I think? What is, do you think, what do I think this text is saying? Yeah. So the way. The way I see this is, so they're saying, you know, our little sister clearly is not a sexual being yet. Yeah. She has no breasts. She is pure and innocent as the white driven snow. Yeah. (laughs) What will we do when that starts to change? Yeah. You know, when people want to have sexual relations with her. And then there there are these two metaphors. If she's a wall, we'll do such and such. And if she's a door, we'll do such and such. Both of them are sort of like, they're going to add defensive structures. Yeah. To, <laughs> to whatever she is. I don't know if they're making any sort of difference between like if she's a wall, that's good because that means it's more defensive to start with. And if she's a door, that's problematic because she lets more people in. Like, I don't I don't know if there's that layering in there or if they're just. Um, when I read that, I, I read that as marking a contrast for sure. And maybe mm-hmm. it's just because some of the texts we've read so far have kind of primed me to sort of be thinking about what's the double entendre in like everything I read. Yeah, um, yeah. And so to me- And we me, already had a door, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we had a door just a minute ago that was very clearly- Had a definite uh, had other some level ambiguity. of meaning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And so I read this as, yeah, if she's a wall, then great. And we're going to like fortify the wall. And if she's a, if she's a door, then we're going to, I mean, in the NRSV, we're going to enclose her with boards of cedar. Like we're going <laughs> to, we're going to like cover over the door. Right. Yeah. In my own, just kind of, you know, intuitive reading of it. I read that as, as a contrast of, they would prefer that she's a wall that they can fortify, but if she's a door, they've got a plan. But like you were saying before, like they they need to go back and read chapters one through <laughs> one through seven, right? Like <laughs> this this ship has sailed. Uh, yeah, right. Um, and so it's kind of I think it's kind of humorous, but also kind of true to life that yeah. people have trouble when, um, especially little girls, I think, um, go through sort of this transition from girlhood to womanhood. And it can take time to catch up for the the family members um, and the especially for I mean, I don't know, but especially for brothers, it seems like the the knee jerk is to like to step in to defend her to defend her honor, not really defend her. She doesn't need defending and not even defend her honor. Like it's defend their honor. honor. Yeah, it's defending their own honor, mm-hmm. which is kind of. She's a transactional piece for their honor. Like how? Yeah. I mean, how do you read her response there? I am a wall. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I just, I love her so much. I'm not totally clear what she's claiming when she says I am a wall. Yeah. Other than I think I like the, at the end, I like the image, but for my lover, I am a city of peace. So I sort of envision there that like uh. she is a wall and her lover's already inside and he's safe and they can put turrets up all they want and it's just going to protect her lover in her city of peace, you know? <laughs> I love the line, I was a wall and my breasts were like towers. Because <laughs> she's, mm-hmm. she's taken this defensive imagery of the wall and said, no, in fact, I do have breasts and they are, mm-hmm. they are towering breasts, right? So. She is, on that sense, refuting. Her brothers have said she's just a little girl, and she's saying, oh, no, I am a woman. And yeah. the second part of that verse, in the NRSV, then I was in his eyes as one who brings peace, is, I mean, a little obscure to me, but the, I mean, the, kind of however you read it, in my mind, what she's saying is, is I'm a wall, and if this were an attack scenario, I would be closed. But this is not an attack scenario. I'm a city at peace. And so my wall mm. is not a defensive wall. My, my wall is, is open and people can come in and out of the gate, right? Or at least my mm-hmm. lover can come in and out of the gate. I love the way she does it there. She's taken their imagery and totally flipped it on its head to say, mm-hmm. oh, I'm a woman and my lover, we don't need, to, we don't need a defensive structure against mm-hmm. my lover. Right. Oh, I'm a wall already. Like... I've got this. I don't need your help. Yeah. It does add a really interesting and sort of, you know, sobering layer to what it is to be a young woman that is like growing up and coming into her sexuality and how the men around her respond to that. You know, both this section and the section that we read in chapter five. Yeah, absolutely. So normally at this point, you would ask me what I think about this text, but I thought you were headed in a really interesting direction just now. And so I want to, if it's okay, I'm going to ask you first what you think about this text. I think I've been sort of talking about it throughout, which again, is not something that I that I planned to do, but it just sort of, it seemed to arise out of our conversation sort of organically. It's weird. There's like, there's the actual sort of love and sexual awakening and the the tremendous force that's happening within the individual person, like within the woman protagonist in this story. 
And then the way that that plays out in her relationship with her lover. And all of that seems sort of good and powerful and like a part of the cosmic universe and like a force uh, a force in the world to be reckoned with. And then there's what other people think about it. <laughs> yeah. You know, and how it makes other people uncomfortable to see this force sort of inhabiting and driving a particular young woman. Yeah. And their desire to to make it not so. Yeah. And so, yeah, here we have the watchmen who are supposed to be protecting people. Mm-hmm. And we have the brothers who you would think would be protecting their sister. But really, I think what they're, they're protecting an idea of honor and are willing to harm the woman herself in their yeah. in their effort to do so. Yeah. Even though the I mean, the force is just like it, it's like the humans are like a, a vessel for this force in the world. Like we don't create it. It just it like flows through us like every other force in the universe flows through us. And so the idea that you would be able to beat it out of someone is is really jarring in this text to me. Yeah. And I think that for me is instructive in the real world. Like that is a, a strange thing to think that we can do or ought to do. Yeah. That's not a very poetic uh, <laughs> poetic thing to draw from the text, but that's where I am right now. No, I think that is really important what you're drawing out there. And, and I really appreciate the way that you have said that. Where do you where do you come come to with this text? Well, a lot of my thoughts are in a similar direction to yours, but you have you've said it so so beautifully that I I think I'm just going to let that stand because I don't know what I can add to that. The other side of this text that I, I keep get, being drawn to is the allegorical reading of the text. Yeah. And saying oh, there's this profound conversation one can have on the human side of this text, but there's also a profound conversation on the allegorical side of this text and the imagery, this is not like last times, both in terms of human imagery and also in terms of divine allegory was like kind of a lovey-dovey text. Mm-hmm. This text is less lovey-dovey. Like there yeah. is passion here. There is violence here. There is loss here. There is wandering. There is, you know, death and cosmic forces. Like this is a complicated depiction of the divine human relationship which in my experience anyway is kind of true to the mm-hmm. divine human relationship. And you and I were talking about that a little bit earlier. But I think especially if you can take this text and flip the allegory back and forth a little bit like we've been doing, which I don't know, that might be heresy. I'm not sure. But like, <laughs> this text is it's about, it's about sex it anyway. We'll just assume it's <laughs> so, fine. Like, yeah. Uh, like, it, it really opens up some fascinating and important conversations about, yeah. well, what does it mean when we feel as though God has abandoned us? and is it true that sometimes we seek after God and, and to our own peril and God isn't there when we need God to be there? Or on the flip side, you know, is it, is it true that God is so infinitely patient with us that we can write on our hearts, you know, we can tattoo it there that God loves us and is going to seek us out, whether it's in the street or beyond the grave, God mm-hmm. is going to come find us. Like God is willing to take risks on our behalf is really profound. And so, you know, in the middle of all that imagery is this really rich and complicated theological conversation about what does it mean to be in a passionate relationship with God? And what does it mean to take risks for our following of God, like you were saying? Or what does it mean to worship a God who's willing to take risks on our behalf? 
this is one of those texts like, I, in, I mean, I, you and I are similar in this way. Like these texts that open up possibilities are much more interesting to me than texts mm-hmm. that try to spell it out. Like this is what, you know, X, Y, Z. Right. And so this text doesn't give us any simple kind of answers, but it gives us some really beautiful and complicated imagery in which we can talk about our experience of God, both in in like feelings of abandonment and also in feelings of a God who, who loves us beyond all things. Mm-hmm. The text kind of holds both of those together in a way that I think most of us hold both of those together too. To me, the Song of Songs, what I keep coming back to is it opens up really interesting conversations. So like, yeah. mm-hmm. let's have those conversations. Let's have those conversations. No, that is, that is, I feel like the perfect conclusion for our conversations about this book. And also to sort of look back over all of the Megillot, the festival scrolls we've read so far. Yeah. And how they, they open up a lot more questions than they answer, but there's a lot of space held in them for thinking the biggest thoughts that humans need yes. to think. You know, and feeling the biggest feelings that we need to feel. And it's a it's a great place, a great place to sort of do that in conversation with our religious community and our relationship. That's exactly our, right. Um, well said. Yeah. Good stuff, Bobby. Yeah. What are we reading next week? So for the rest of the summer, we're moving into narrative texts away from these poetic texts. So for the next two weeks, we'll be in Ruth. And then for the two weeks after that, we'll be in Esther. Yeah, Ruth and Esther, and that will round out our study of this section of the biblical text. Well, I'm looking forward to the conversation, Amy. I am as well. I hope you have a great week. You too. Bye. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Bible Worm. I hope you'll be back with us again next week. Take good care. <laughs>